right. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of all things technology and people performance. Today, I am looking forward to the conversation. I look forward to a lot of conversations, but this one's going to be extremely fun. I'm joined by Shanak Roy from Yellow Dig, and we're going to go ahead and make the case that digital online experiences can be superior, not just equal to, but superior to an in-person experience. Now, if, you're, if you listen to that and that triggers you, well, so be it, because we're going to make the case for that today. And I'm excited about that because I, I tend to walk this line very carefully, but I think there's a lot of uh, credibility to talking about why that is possible and what some of the hurdles to doing that. So thanks so much for joining me, Shanak. Christopher, it's a pleasure to be here, and I love the word fun, because that's what we are all about. And you, we, we are going to have fun, and yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. So for those who may not be familiar with you or Yellow Dig, let's go a little bit of a kind of trajectory down who you are and how you ended up getting into this space. Because to come on the show with me and make the bold claim... And again, I'm supportive of this, but to make the bold claim that we can make better online experiences than in-person experiences, that's bold. So I'm curious what your journey has been that has gotten you to the point where you said, you know what, I'm actually going to go out and I'm going to do something about this. Well, uh, so Shana Troy, so I'm the founder and CEO of Yellowdig. Uh, I started the company back in 2015. So we've been on this journey for about eight okay. years now. Uh, and my uh, journey before find, founding Yellowdig, uh, I'm an engineer by training, uh, did my undergrad in engineering from India, came to the US, did my master's uh, from engineering, um, and then after that, spent about a decade in various corporate roles. Uh, I was a okay. consultant for a few big corporate uh, consulting companies. Uh, and then right about uh, mid-career, I kind of got the bug to start my own company. I think the bug has been there for a while. But then finally, it came to the point that I could not resist myself and, and start okay. uh, this company elevating. So happy to talk more about it. And, and I love the way you framed it because I, I, do, I do believe we are on the cusp of uh, you know, a, a bunch of trends right now in terms of technology yeah. and how people use and how comfortable we are becoming so that digital experience could be not only same, but actually better than in-person experiences. And we can define it for learning and many other things. Uh, you know what? If you do it right, that has been my experience. So that's why when we were backstage talking about this, I was like, oh, I'm really excited to have this because it's not every day I actually get a chance to talk with someone who actually believes that um, and, and has seen it work. So we're going to get into that. But I am curious before we get into this. So engineer by what kind of engineer, though? Well, like in, in the because engineering, that's that's a broad field. Yes. So that's a great point. So my undergrad was mechanical engineering. Uh, which is the traditional uh, building stuff, like okay. building cars yeah. and things like that. Uh, that was in India. And when I came to the U.S., I did my master's in systems engineering from MIT. So that was okay. more about uh, kind of really thinking engineering from a little more broader perspective, where we not yeah. only build cars, but also think about other systems. Uh, which uh, So which what's interesting in about that, no, what, what's interesting about this is, and I'm actually really curious about that, because sometimes when I engage with folks who that's been their trajectory, I mean, again, especially mechanical engineering, that is a very hands-on, <laughs> that is a very hands-on field. And engineering in general tends to be a hands-on kind of collaborative space. So what... <laughs> Were you always trying to disrupt the status quo in that? Or was there something that happened that made you go, I actually, because again, digital learning from mechanical engineering is not usually a trajectory I, I see. I mean, maybe digital learning, like I want to build a tech platform, but actually going, no, I actually want to disrupt the fundamentals of education and how that happens. That's not usually a path I, I see intersect. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. You know, I mean, I think one of the advantages I had, given I was, you know, born at a time where we used to build things by hand, which still happens, but not that often. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I've seen the journey of myself personally and also seen people and the, 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 the world around me evolve to be more digital over, over the years. Okay. So I have an appreciation for 
people who can build stuff by their hands, but then also kind of try to replicate some of those experiences digitally and online. Um, you know, one ex an example, I'll, I'll give an example because this kind of raises a very interesting point, uh, which is, you know, when I was back doing my mechanical engineering, we used to have all these ideas of, you know, building stuff. Like imagine building a, a park. Yeah. At that time, I had to go to a shop floor and find a machine, not only get a machine, but reserve a machine, find the raw materials, uh, and then do the measurements and then make sure that everything is right because we didn't have computers when I was there and we were just getting introduced to computers at that point. Yeah. And build stuff. Now, imagine the amount of friction you have to actually build anything from scratch <laughs> in that day and age. Uh, with all the things that can go wrong, like every step can go wrong because you don't have that kind of correlation or digital support that we have today. Now compare that with, you know, uh, companies like Tesla or SpaceX and others, they are actually building next generational mechanical things like rockets and cars and many other things, which is, um, you know, possible because now we are using modern technologies like a Tesla car is a mechanical machine and it also is a computer yeah. right so yeah it's almost it's like both. a method and it has 3d printing printed parts and things like that so i see technology is not really replacing what we used to do as mechanical engineers or any other engineers but actually accelerating if yeah. used properly like if you use properly the right tools we can actually do much more that that was impossible to do like 20 years back when i was uh, in my engineering okay so I, I absolutely love that you brought this up because this is such a, so also it, it totally, I get a better understanding of who you are as an individual, even by you telling that story, because the fact you saw that and recognized that and said, okay, what's coming, these technological changes, it's not a threat to what I do, even from a mechanical engineering standpoint. I had an episode, I think it was several months ago with a gentleman who's He's in the process. He's now launched it. He's built an online robotics program to teach kids robotics and it's all digital. And we had a similar conversation where he had a similar vision where he loved robotics. He was fascinated by it, but the amount of friction that existed in teaching children robotics was massive. I mean, it was very restrictive to only people who could afford to be part of it. And even then, well, there were only so many parts that you could give them. And by doing it online, suddenly the possibilities of imagination were just completely unlocked because it was like, well, we, we don't have spatial limitations. We don't have cost restrictions. We don't have all these things allowed them to manipulate and do things that they couldn't do before. And, you know, it sounds like for you, that was the same thing where you went, oh, imagine the possibilities of what we could do if we digitize this. And at the end of the day, I'm guessing you still had to eventually build an actual product, but the learning component of it you're able to say, well, we could make that a superior experience, ultimately still getting us to the same destination, but a better destination by using the digital components. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, coming to learning, there is another uh, word that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, it's called active learning, uh, where when you're learning something, you're not just learning by reading, but you're actually proactively engaging in that learning process. Um, and one can say, like, to your example, uh, if you're learning about robotics, um, you can learn by actually building a robot in, in a lab, which is great, but you can actually create an experience which is probably fully or partially online where kids or students are building these parts together. They're trying to kind of make things work. They're probably writing code for some of these things, could be 3 model and things like that. That itself is also active learning. So... When we say active learning, yeah. it doesn't have to be active, meaning using your hands. You can actually use your mind and be more active, which is probably what it means uh, to learn better. And as you just said beautifully, which is digital makes it so much easier and possible and so much frictionless. So, uh, which is why I'm excited about this. I, I think the, yeah. the, 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 the possibilities are endless if we use the right digital tools for the right learning outcomes. Well, and I think what you hit on there is the key component of this, which we'll get into some of the friction points that we well, that inevitably happens. But I think that's where I see this sometimes where people get resistance. First of all, one was the piece that you addressed, 
which was some of it can be perceived as as a threat or it's uncomfortable. It's not it's not what I'm familiar with. It's change. And as anybody knows, a lot of times when people are faced with change, it's easier to try and push back on it than to lean into it. But I think the other piece that you keep highlighting is doing it the right way, you know, would be would be a key component to that. So before we dive too deep into that, you got your start. So you did the mechanical engineering, then you went into systems engineering. And then that transition to, I want to improve like learning experiences at a whole. <laughs> where, where did you get started with that? Were you like on a quest to improve learning experience now on, at an academic level? Like where did that inspiration or where did that kick off? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the first part of my inspiration came when I was working in consulting. Okay. Um, and if, you, if you're a consultant, you know, in a company, the, the regular way you typically work is that, you know, you have a discussion or a meeting with a client, you have a problem that you have to come and solve, get a whole bunch of data, do some analysis, research around it, and then present back to that, right? Now, in the, that day and age, I mean, one thing I realized is that the way I was learning is not so much just going to a library or, you know, taking a course. I was mostly learning by doing the horror internet searches, like really learning about that topic in Google and other search engines, uh, getting to know as much as possible, going to my company's intranet and trying to find as many case studies I can find on that problem, and then talking to peers who actually had done similar projects uh, or have solved some problems. Um, and as a consultant, I mean, this is pretty relatable and that's how people learn. And I also saw there's another big trend happening on the technology landscape that time, which is social media. Yeah. Uh, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, they were all kind of active platforms and growing rapidly. And I saw the correlation between these two things, which is I was actually trying to learn from different sources and different people uh, for my work. At the same time, social media, you can connect with as many people as you can like. It doesn't have to be in your same team or a company or the same office or same geography, right? You can have people all over the world and do it at a friction of a cost, like you don't have to pick up your phone, you can ask something <laughs> close to a question that yeah. get 20 answers. I saw that benefit of that. I saw social media can be very powerful, but I also realized that um, social media is not designed for learning, right? Social no. media is designed for selling products or driving engagement. This is what their main business model is. So I kind of like merged those three or two things together saying that it would be nice to have a platform which I call social learning where um, like-minded people who are interested in a topic to learn together can come together and have a platform where they can connect with one another, ask questions, get share resources, but happen in a way which is, doesn't feel like social, feels like social media, but can actually have some benefits of features and functionality that are needed. Okay. So that was the some, something more than just like a mindless scroll feed of stuff that you're just kind of going through to kill time. Like let's let's bring people together around the purpose of growing and developing around a central topic. That's right. Okay. Okay. What's <laughs> what I really appreciate about hearing some of these things is, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong on this, but what one of the things that resonates with me on this um, is something that you highlighted is the desire for efficiency in some of this that comes out of this. Like I'm, I'm pretty relentless at trying to find efficiency gains and things. And even just what you talked about in terms of the social interaction piece where yes, I can interact with people on a, on a physical level and I don't avoid it. It's not that I avoid it, but when I look at the scalability of where can I invest the least amount of time and get the biggest net return for that time investment, like I just look at all the friction points of like, I even think going to a conference as an example, I could go to a conference, but the friction point of my time away, how many people am I really going to interact with? I'm an introvert. So chances are, I'm not going to interact with as many people, those people. Am I actually going to actually stay engaged with them afterwards and all the inefficiency that goes around it? I'm like, or <laughs> I can leverage the social relationships that I have set up individual meetings with the people that I want. I can reach more people. I don't have to try and coordinate. And when I look at the inefficiency of it, to me, it's just a natural case. And it sounds like there's some of that behind the scenes and you going, 
it's not that I think this is terrible. It's just, I see so many efficiency gains that we can build into some of this by leveraging the power of social dynamics, social media dynamics, and then academic learning. And how do you blend those two together? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that is uh, one of the key aspects of our uh, platform design and the value that our clients see out of it, which is exactly what you said, efficiency gain. Uh, the other side of the coin is reducing friction, which okay. is imagine a, a, a classroom or uh, some sort of a community of learners, let's say 100 of them, uh, for them to actually talk to one another, there's a lot of friction involved, where you have to find yourself in the same space. You so happen to be in the same <laughs> class or so happen to be talking about the same thing that you find interesting. Yeah. Um, and if you have a question, you so happen to have the courage to speak up and you know get an answer or just wait for the next class uh, that you may wait for. So the frictions are also enormous. So all <laughs> of that is solved in one strategy, which is you can reduce cost. Efficiency meaning you can have a larger group, one instructor supporting everybody, answer one question from one student, everybody gets the answer in one go in a community. Or somebody shares a wonderful idea, everybody can engage around it. It doesn't have to be one-on-one know, -on -one conversations. But yeah. aside, I mean, now we have a scenario where you can do things that is just not possible. And which is where I would start to kind of connect the dots around our initial hypothesis that why online is not just equal, but better because better. it opens up possibilities <laughs> it otherwise would not happen. Well, and, and what you, and this is the thing, I like the way we're approaching this because when we started this on a, we're going to make the case that digital online can actually be superior to legacy methods. I think sometimes where I see the resistance come is people are operating off the assumption that legacy approaches what you described, okay, all these things are assumed that they just happen all the time. Where, as you described it, like the odds of the right person having the question, having the confidence to speak up on the question, everybody in the room paying attention at the right time and catching all that, we a lot of times forget that our idealistic standard that we're often comparing other alternatives to is unrealistic, you know, we're taking the best of the best of the best of the best circumstances. Let's assume everything goes 100% right. The stars align, like all the dots connect. Let's compare that to something that we're less comfortable with. And it's one of those things where you're like, well, of course, if you're trying to compare those two, it looks like there's just such a distinct difference. But to your point on because you're creating more opportunities for those lines to intersect, you're actually creating more possibilities for the lines to intersect than you than would even be possible in a traditional environment. Yes, and, and that that's actually a really good point, Christopher, because you know part of the challenge in education or you know areas where we do not have a lot of information, like you know, typically the door once the doors are closed, you don't know what's happening inside that classroom. No, right. So all you know is that the pamphlet that you got, it's going to be the next best 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 experience for you. And then you go into classroom and you have some discussion and then it's over, you get a certificate. But you really don't have the data to know what really went on compared to what was advertised or what is the possibility, the, the, the best in class experience that could have been possible. Yeah. Compared to online, the best part, best part of online is that the data is available. Yes. So if you had three interactions in the whole two hours, in a closed classroom, you don't know what happened, but online, you know, actually, there were only three interactions. Uh, you know who interacted, you know how much the interaction happened, you know what kind of questions were asked, what discussion diversity was there, what sort of interesting um, kind of conversation happened, and so many other ways of, you know, you can measure learning. Um, that is just not possible in, in a physical learning environment, but it is very much possible in an online environment. Yeah. Well, and I, I just even think of, so one of the, one of the things that, and again, for folks who are listening, don't mistake what I'm saying that what we're talking about is that I, and, and I've had to clarify this in the past a few times, because I've had people literally ask me, so are you suggesting if people are physically in the same proximity, you would say that they should, you know, sit in cubes separate from each other on, and I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about 
ruining opportunities where collaboration can happen. But what I'm saying is shifting your mindset to saying, let's not pretend like that's the norm because it really isn't. I mean, even the coordination and execution of a sort of in-person thing, that in and of itself is an extraordinary feat. To anybody who's been in the event planning space before, God bless you, because I know how much goes into trying executing, making sure everything happens. And so these kinds of things just don't organically, magically happen. And I think sometimes this is where nostalgia kicks in, where we remember those handful of moments where we're like, ah, I just remember, you know, when that all when that all came together. And it's like, yeah, that's fantastic. But the likelihood, the probability of that is like the probability of winning the lottery twice, you know, in your lifetime type of a thing. And I just think of some of the examples where just one simple one, where a lot of times people go, but I just love the aha moments that come from folks. And it's, and going back to what we said, those things are great, but who actually caught that aha moment? You know, maybe it was just that one individual. Did they even remember they had that aha moment? Did everybody else capture that aha moment? Did they have a chance to ask follow-up questions to that individual's aha moment and that takeaway, were you able to engage in a rich dialogue specifically around that aha moment? And a lot of times the answer would be like, well, no, we didn't have time for that. And it's like, mm -hmm. exactly, exactly. You, you, you physically couldn't because you had other things that you had. There were so many friction restrictions around what you were doing. You couldn't possibly capitalize on what that is versus you start augmenting experiences with digital components. You can start to say that single aha moment in and of itself could turn into an experience all on its own that, that could inspire discussion, dialogue, all this, like you could drill into it. You could, I mean, there's just so much more potential that you can do with it than you could in something where you go, well, it happened and it was a flash in the pan and there wasn't any more that we could do with it. Not to your, the fault of anyone, other than just that's the reality of the environment that we were in. Yeah, no, that, that's, that is exactly, uh, you know, how most of the in-person experiences sometimes end up happening. But, you know, one thing you just use, which is the augmenting the experience is maybe the, the it is not really a competition, whether in-person is, uh, you know, superior to online or online is superior to in-person, because we all know that blending or augmented learning is where things are probably going eventually. Yes, where there is a component of in person that we we cannot replace, and there are those moments where you know you meet somebody and you have a conversation that is just not possible if you just met somebody online because you don't know the full person, you probably haven't seen the body language, you don't see some things like you only see your face or you know in a post or a comment you only can see so much about people. I think that that part is definitely very important in person, but I think the point that you're making is that creating an online experience that augments that in-person experience in a mean, meaningful way so that we have more aha moments uh, is yeah. the probably the design uh, direction that we are heading. And I'll give an example because we see in our platform, you know, in our platform now, uh, we, we serve about half a million learners on our platform uh, from universities around from about 150 universities in the U.S. and some companies and K-12 um, we just crossed 2 billion words that has been written by us learners on our platform. So I think they are pretty vocal. They're not just coming and reading content or saying, hey, I agree, but they're actually very... Yeah. <laughs> There's some rich dialogue happening here. There, there is some real deep conversation that happens and we love to see that and we gamify that experience so that you know students are uh, talking to one another in a very passionate way and somebody who's not used to talking can also... Uh, get more engaged in our platform happy to talk about that but the point i was trying to make to what you just said is that we often see that there would be a conversation that will happen in a synchronous session it could be in a physical classroom could be an online session like this and then maybe it happened between two people but somebody heard it and then they will join into a community you know a yeah. community and actually bring that example and say that wow have you seen this video that i just saw yesterday and this is what I think, what do you guys think? That kind of feedback loop and almost like connecting the dots in a variety of ways is the opportunity of the asynchronous experience uh, yeah. or a digital learning experience that is not possible, which is a synchronous experience. Um, 
and then connecting that back. We often find instructors will, uh, what they will do is that then they tell us is that they, before they walk into a session with a group of learners, they will look into the community and see that what was discussed last week, right? I mean, what okay. were the three topics that were relevant? And they'll take one of those examples, mention the student, maybe summarize some thought process and then bring them into the conversation. So it kind of really uh, increases those aha moments, which is often, as you said, between two people, but now it can have a much bigger uh, group of people who are involved. Yeah. Well, and I think that I really appreciate you bringing it to this because often when I hear the discussion around online, in person, the debate, to me, it's a very binary discussion of, well, is it this or is it that? And to your point, it's why are we having this discussion? It doesn't have to be either or. And even in my bio on LinkedIn, I, I say digital first. And people assume that means, oh, you're just trying to replace everything with technology. And it's like, no, that's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is how do we enrich and accelerate the human experience with things that we couldn't do before with technology? And to your point, that's not in competition with one or the other. We're not saying put this one, take this one out like old yeller behind the shed and then only go this way. What we're saying is, no, look at the holistic experience look at what the possibilities are and how can technology enhance or augment that? Because even going back to, um, and this is, I think, and I will say, this has been a challenge for a lot of people. So I'm sensitive to this. You know, the pandemic hit and a lot of folks were forced into this. We used to do it this way. We just literally got thrown into the deep end of the pool, ill-prepared to deal with this. Now everyone's remote, all this. And now we're coming back into this environment of, well, sometimes people are remote, sometimes they're not. We're not sure what day of the week they're going to be here. And the inconsistency around all this stuff has created this even more challenging environment where you do have to kind of go, it has to be both. You don't really have the option to say, well, is it one or the other? You just have to say, no, we have to think, how are we going to deliver this experience? And you know what? Maybe four of the people can't be there or they're going to be here on this day, but not this day and all of this. So how do we deal with that complexity? And in my opinion, the only way you deal with that complexity is with technology because no method can accommodate the level of complexity and dynamics that we're wrestling with right now. If you try and take a low end digital approach or even just an analog approach, you just cannot keep up. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Uh, and, you know, one thing I also like to say is that it might feel to folks that how do we create an experience with technology um, suddenly, right, where there are no real rules. Like, you know, in the physical experiences, there are very clear rules around it. Come to yeah. class or come to this session at 8.30, make sure you have, you know, you have a hotel, whatnot, get into there, and do the <laughs> session. You know, come back, there's the evening drinks, and then after that, tomorrow we are going to debrief it. It's a very fixed schedule. That this is how a lot of the work has happened, like whether in corporate training or in, uh, you know university or even K twelve. With technology, some of those barriers gets a little blurry because people want flexibility. Right? That is uh, one of the biggest yeah. barriers. <laughs> right? right. So it, right, it, I'm it, not it, a morning it, person. Seven o'clock in the morning start doesn't work for me because my brain doesn't turn on till noon or something like that. Exactly. And, and now we have this optionality to you know, engage more students, more learners in a much more authentic way. But I think one thing that you've mentioned, right, that how do we like, it is feels overwhelming. Like, how do we design experiences that are, you know, catering to this new reality that we're living in? One way I've found people do it pretty successfully, and we have seen, you know, we work with so many partners now, we have seen, we have learned so much from them, essentially, as they have designed their experiences is, focusing on the learner, where um, really not thinking about technology, but really thinking about what are the, the goals of this learning experience? Like, this is what we want to train them for. Yeah. We want to make sure that they have access to the right content. We want to make sure that they have the right uh, conversation opportunities in terms of synchronous sessions. And then we want to also drive engagement where, you know, one of the big problems of in-person was that you can just sit there and listen and not really engage. And we all know it was passive. Very I mean, passive. It was right? passive. It was very easy to be a passive learner. 
Yes, exactly, right? In the classroom, I'm the you know 50th learner or in a big group or even in a small group. If I don't engage, I don't engage in that like one or two hours. And I no. can get away with it because my physical presence masks the fact that I'm a passive learner because it looks like I'm active. It's like, well, I'm here, so obviously I'm active. And it's like, no, actually, you're just as passive <laughs> as yeah, if you're yeah. on Netflix, alt-tabbed, you know, with the with the session in the background. Yeah, and, and look, there has been a big fight also in, in uh, you know, uh, colleges, universities, K-12, whether they will allow, let's say, laptops or phones in those sessions that you have to switch it off. And that battle, I think the ship has sailed, which is you cannot stop people from digital tech. Like it's the reality. <laughs> they, they can sit there, watch their laptop. It's the air we it. breathe. You can't turn it off. <laughs> in, in a, exactly. The ship or the train has left now. So we have to really live in that reality. So the point is that I, uh, you know, what I've seen people have been very successful is that if they focus on the learner, design the right experience for them so that they are active it's much more driven by them as opposed to driven by the instructor. And then think about how does technology fit into that learning experience is where the success comes. And where it doesn't happen is I have these five different tools. I'm just going to cobble them together. I have some content access and elements access, this access. That doesn't create, that creates a very much like a physical in-person experience, which we all know yeah. doesn't work. We are replicating that problem in online in those scenarios and it doesn't work. So. So I, I think it kind of takes us to the point that like online does take some work in terms of designing these it, experiences. It does. And I want to talk about that because I think that's an important next next direction to go. But here's a here's something I'm curious about. And if you're if you listen or watch this later, I'm curious your thoughts on this. But I think this is one of the hard looks in the mirror, even just being vulnerable about my own experience. Because while people assume like, oh, you've always been this way. I mean, I have, but there also was a journey I was on. And I think one of the things that for me, and I'm curious if you've seen some of this is digital is uncomfortable and you hit on this because there is this lack of control that you have or a perceived lack of control that you have over what happens. And I actually say it's a perceived lack of control that you used to have because even the example we talked about, well, like, well, when people were in the room and they were here at a certain time and we were doing these things, there was this perception that I am controlling the learning experience. And there's some comfort that comes with that. Like I have this to get done. And so I have control over this to some degree, even though, as we just described, you actually had no control over it. You like to think you did, but in reality, you didn't really have control. If somebody didn't want to pay attention, if somebody was wanted to daydream all day, if somebody wanted to, you know, blow it off, they could. But it gave us a comfort level of like, well, at least I feel like I'm in control. And as in as we move into this digital age, there is this idea that like, oh boy. And I don't think it's that we have less control because if anything, I think we actually can have more control in terms of like you said, we have more visibility into things. We can personalize based on the, like we have a lot more ability to do more powerful things. But I think when we're uncomfortable with it, there's a perception of, I have to kind of hold this with an open hand and recognize I have less control of this than I maybe feel comfortable with. And I just even know for myself, that was a big part of my journey in, in being a dad and being a husband and being a leader in an organization is actually kind of coming to this realization that, you don't really have control over this. And I think that's where digital, once you lean into it, it actually can be comforting because it's like, well, you don't have control, but you have more visibility into knowing how to shape and mold it. But that that can be a really uncomfortable spot. It is uh, 100%. And you, know, you, you mentioned leaning in is what, what it really requires. Um, you know, we often hear stories from our instructors who are using us um, in the beginning, when we explained to them that what Yellow League is going to do is to create a community where learners are going to bring in lots of discussion topic and engage with one another. And as an instructor, your role is no longer the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. And you are going to be a participant into that community where you will have more power. You will have more power, but you're actually engaging with them. You're not just grading them and telling them this is good or right. And that model, um, what we've seen is that a lot of instructors, as you said, initially they feel there's a lack of control because yeah. um, the, the world they typically they're used to, and 
for good reasons because they've done it for you know decades now where they will give an assignment or give an ask a question and they'll get an answer at a certain time and once you've done your social work assignment you get it you know you're done if that was a requirement right it's almost like a forced uh, assignment now in this world it's a lot more free flowing so we often hear that you know is it going to work what's going to happen if somebody does something bad um, all the negatives will come in mind, like, you know, all the bad things sure. in the world, right? So the, these are the hesitations. and Because <laughs> they happens. didn't happen before. They never happened before. <laughs> it always went perfect before. But now, what about all these horrible things that could go wrong? <laughs> exactly. So, now, but, but there is this anxiety that comes with it. Now, because, you know, they probably yeah. you know, know that the, the, you know, it's not the case. But I think what, what, what we've seen work is that if they are at least have that openness to try something new and be trained for that. Like one thing that yeah. doesn't work is if they say that, okay, I have done this thing and I'm going to do the same thing in this environment, then there's going to be a lot of pushback because you're trying to apply an old framework into a new framework and it'll never fit. Like a, a square uh, peg is not going to fit into a you know, round hole. So you, you, how much of a you tie? But if you really think about this as a new experience and get trained, it works like wonders. Like there's so many examples where we have instructors come to us and say that, well, you know what, I never believed it's going to work. Even students will come and say, I, I thought this is not going to work for us. But, you know, <laughs> a few weeks in, I kind of got a little bit of sense, this is actually working, it's not falling apart. And maybe in a couple of months, I see that, oh, this is wonderful now. This is the new new reality for us. Yeah. And I, th I think it's possible. It's just that we have to help them go through that journey for a lot of people. Yeah. No, I, th I think it's a really good point. And, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that we can do, I think, to help people through this. But a similar parallel that I just think back, you know, it's funny now reflecting back on this, but I remember when the pandemic kicked up and it, everybody went home and at first it was kind of a party. Everybody was excited to not be going into work. And then we went through this phase of like, people were frustrated with, and it's like, I just don't know that this is going to work. And like, how are we going to be able to do this? And then we, we got through it. And now what we're seeing on the other side of this, and we see this in the headlines all the time is like, People are going, wait a minute, why would we ever go back to the way we used to do it? And I actually even think of, I'm trying to think of what guests I was talking to backstage and we were talking about this, like our kids are going to grow up and they're going to laugh at some of the things that we used to do and go, ha, like, you really used to do that? Like, you used to go into an office? Like, why? Type of a thing. And I think similar to the learning experience where it's a hard transition and it feels difficult. And I think even some of the things that you hit on was it, it is more work. It is more intentional, but that's the same work that should have been happening before. But I think we didn't notice it as much because mm -hmm. it was like, well, I'm, a, I'm just taking for granted people are here. So I'm going to assume that the learning's happening. And it's like, actually, it's not. If you weren't being intentional in the classroom, the same issues you're going to run into online were happening anyway. You just might have felt better about yourself because you didn't see it as much. Or now it's kind of showing us the reality of this stuff. But I think to your point, um, I just think back on a number of experiences that I've had over the years where we've positioned a very radically different way of doing things. And people were like, I just don't know. Like, I just don't see this working well. But then as they get into it, they start going like, wow, we eliminated that friction point and that friction point and that, and you know, this is actually kind of working. Like, whoa, people are participating. Whoa, we're actually seeing change. And you're like, yes. And then similar to what I just described, like you get to the other side and people look back and go, why did we ever do it? <laughs> why did we ever do it that way before? It doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, see, this is the journey we were taking you on. Yeah, no, uh, the, yeah, 100%. Completely agree with you. So on the, on the skills though, cause I do think this is an important part. And you talked about this, that, you know, you can't just take what you were doing before and flip it into a digital environment and go, you know, there you go. It's done. I'm sure it's going to work great. You, you can't, you can't put new wine in an old wine skin. It'll, it, it'll break. It just does not work well. What are some of those things, because especially with the higher education and all the academic institutions and the work in corporate, like I, I have no doubt that you've worked with a lot of folks that have been through this journey. What are some of those things that people get stuck on? Because there is a real learning curve. I mean, there's a learning curve with making the transition and it's not something that you do 
overnight and go there, we figured it out. Now we're magically a digital first learning organization. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And you know, one of the, the underlying challenges is that with digital, as you see, there is a very emergent behavior pattern that comes out of it, yeah. right? And it's very hard to kind of know exactly what's going to work and what's going to work. Uh, some products which have proven now across many institutions, now you can say that, okay, this has been proven now, maybe it'll work for sure, but any new idea, for example, might be like, I'm not quite sure because it's not, you know, we don't know. So what has worked, I've seen, is experimentation. So okay. meaning starting small, um, launching it into a limited group of learners or employees or whichever way it is, and then actually starting to measure the impact. Uh, because one of the things about digital is that you can actually measure. Yeah. Uh, and people forget that because, you know, sometimes we will talk to institutions where leaders will say, oh, we have this great idea and now we're going to make it happen to the entire institution <laughs> and this is going to be a five-year plan. And the moment I hear that, I see that, okay, that was true in that world where you could not really measure things. So you have to build all your conviction in the beginning. And then go for that path. And everybody has to be aligned yeah. and spend millions Yeah, of you dollars. did. It was like, go big or go home because there's really no way of knowing whether it's going to work. So we just have to really do our best on the front end and then hope. Exactly. So that was the world to the digital world is the best way is that, okay, phase one. And the phase one is a limited learner group. Try the product or try the experience. But let's decide what we're going to measure. Things like level of engagement, how much of peer interaction happened, what sort of feedback we did we receive from the learners at the end of it? What kind of feedback did we receive from the instructors? Are there direct correlation with learning outcomes, if you have defined those, uh, to be able to see actually that, uh, whether this is working or not? And if it's working, then you know that you, know, you can scale it up. And that part is not as difficult once you know how, how things can scale up. So that's what I've seen work really well. The other thing I also have seen is that kind of having that um, leadership so that um, having that intentionality to design experiences which are different than which they have done before. So every tool, like for, for example, our uh, platform, uh, when we launch into an institution, um, we kind of have these meetings with leadership from a, a kind of a learning design standpoint, from an instruction standpoint, from a okay. university administration standpoint to align that this technology that we are building is going to create new behaviors. And this is why we are doing this. And if there is an alignment there, then we say that, okay, let's do a uh, uh, kind of phase one to really look at the results. Okay. But sometimes we see that the alignment could be a challenge too, because um, you, know, you need to make sure that people are thinking that way as opposed to not thinking the old way, which is, happens sometimes. Okay. But, but good news is that that is shifting. I, I do have seen that since the pandemic in the last two, three years, there is a pretty pretty kind of noticeable shift in universities, colleges, where we are primarily working with, um, they are kind of looking forward to these technologies and kind of really looking to make new experiences for the learners. Well, and I'm sure to some degree, it has to do with just the expectation. I mean, I think this is in some ways a, a positive thing is the expectation is almost becoming, you have to do this. I mean, the expectation going back to thinking about the learner or the end user, the, the expectation is you will. It's not a, well, do you? you know, kind of like back in the day when it was like, well, is this mobile friendly or not? Like now, <laughs> nobody's asking that question. It's just like, it, it, it has to be mobile friendly. There's no, oh, this doesn't work on a mobile device. It, I mean, you can, but it's, it's a strategy doomed to failure type of a thing. And I think, you know, one of the things that, well, the two things that stood out to what you said that I think are a really important part in this is that experimentation mindset. That's a pretty significant mindset shift. And I'm, I'm even reflecting back on what you said on your mechanical engineering background. I, I have to imagine even that mindset shift has to happen even in those kinds of fields where you go, digital actually drives more of this experimentational mindset. Because going back to the mechanical engineering, when you had an idea, you probably had to put a lot more like, okay, if we're going to do this, we got to think it through and we got to think through all the implications and all this other stuff. And all this effort had to go into that before you even considered starting because mm -hmm. the cost, the time, the energy, all this, it was like, uh, we can't go down this path versus in the digital age, you could go, you know what, what's the harm in trying this and seeing what happens? Like, let's just do it. And if it doesn't work, 
whatever, we move on, no, no hurt, no foul, and we'll experiment with something else. So there is almost this, which can feel exhausting, but I think it's just a different attitude of, we're just going to basically constantly be iterating. We're in a continuous cycle of iteration and improvement versus we got to figure out the whole thing before we go anywhere. Yeah, no, no, 100%. And that's a very significant change. One thing I've seen some of the you know, institutions that we work with is they've created now entities which are uh, primarily for innovation, where okay. they have a separate team. So they have a team which is focused on kind of really making sure that the existing kind of institution is working through whatever technology or whichever processes they're, they're following. But there's a separate team where uh, they are kind of bringing this like experimentation mindset, very data-driven strategies, uh, uh, focusing on like learning design and kind of really thinking about the future of learning, bringing in like, you know, 3Ds and uh, virtual reality and AI and many other things together, including our technologies together yep. to really kind of measure the impact in a very scientific way, like almost like doing A-B tests uh, where you have a group of students using one piece of software or one pedagogy and another, another not doing it. So, and that works because then the culture there is that if you fail, it doesn't really matter because this was, it is designed for experimentation. So, um, so having those kind of you know separate teams focusing on it is a good strategy that we've seen. Some schools can do it, um, uh, and yeah, I mean having the the right kind. Of, sometimes we see faculties or uh, instructors themselves pull it up. So they will actually start using our product. Uh, we have a freemium version uh, where we give it out for free in some cases. Where they will they have to qualify for it, but once they qualify, they can yeah. use it for free. Um, and if they use it for free, we invite them for webinars and they can talk about us and that helps us to spread the word. Okay. okay. Well, and I think, you know, as you talked about some of this, the other piece that I actually want to call out, and I think it's worth highlighting is that experimentation mindset, to your point, you, you said it and then you also refined it here. And I think my experience has been very similar where this isn't you're changing everything all the time. But more like you said, you're experimenting in these small like environments where you're like, hey, let's let's test this out here type of thing versus I think sometimes that gets interpreted that and I see this in organizations, not just in learning where it's like, let's just change everything all the time and constant. And that just leads to digital fatigue and people are like, I don't even know what we're doing anymore type of a thing. So I think that strategic intentional approach to yes, we have this mindset of constant improvement and iteration. But this isn't just change the parts on the machine like constantly, because at that point, then you never actually know, well, is anything even working? Like, because everything's constantly changing. So I think it is that mindset of experimentation, but not blind, you know, running in every direction. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, and I think the other, the second point that I wanted to call out to your previous point that I think is, you know, I would say this to, and again, I think everything we're talking about, what's interesting about this is everything we're talking about is true, yes, for learning. I see this applying to literally everything in business transformation. So to me, everything we're discussing right now, we're applying it through the lens of, as an L&D leader, this is how you should think about it. But I would say to any business leader and any business executive, this is how you should be thinking about just work in general, organizational strategy in general. I think there's a lot of principles that you can take from here. But I think one of the things that you called out is the importance of leadership's commitment to this. Because I say this a lot, that as a senior L&D leader, there's not a lot of incentive to change. <laughs> I mean, there's just not. Like the, the gravitational pull of status quo is massive. Like it is absolutely massive what is just trying to bring you back to just keep doing what you've always been doing. You know, it's easier. You're going to run into less headwinds. More people are just going to go along with it. Just take the orders, do the thing, stick to the status quo. And I just would encourage people that it's a rough, and, I, and I'd love your take on this because you're seeing this change in institutions and all this stuff that, Yes, there's some real hard work that has to happen to get that change. And there's going to be a lot of things telling you, just throw in the towel. 
like just throw in the towel. Like it's not worth it to do this. But my experience has been once you get through that stage, not that it's just easy going, but to me, it's always been worth it in the long end, even though when you're in the thick of it, it doesn't feel like that. Like in the thick of it, you're like, this is an absolute nightmare. Everybody's arguing with me. Nobody wants to do this. Everybody's questioning, challenging me on this. Like maybe I should just go back to what I was doing. But every time I've made it to the other side, I've never looked back and gone, not worth it. And I think that's almost an encouragement to leaders who may be feeling that way right now going like, I hear you, but like, do you know what I'm dealing with, with my stakeholders? Do you know what I'm dealing with, with some of this stuff? And it's like, I do. I do. And I've been there, but it's once you get through it, it is worth it on the other side. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And you know, one thing I, I do strongly feel is that, you know, if you look at L and D as a function, if I even reflect back to my experience when I was a consultant for a long period of time, you know, back in the days you can have an L and D function or a leader, which is fairly more focused where you're, you have a very clear mandate, there are certain trainings that needs to be done on a yearly basis. Um, and then there are certain strategic needs based on leadership that you have to go and you find the content, find the provider and you know, provide that. But now, if you look at any company, pretty much any company now across the industries, um, we need to be like learning organizations to be successful. Think about after COVID what has happened, right? I mean, the world is upside down right now. The yeah. ton of changes <laughs> that are happening is mind-boggling, right? I mean, there are new regulations that are coming up. The geopolitical scenario is always changing. Um, <laughs> Advanced AI is like marching onto the scene. Marching on and just wrapping through, you know, whoever gets on the way. Yeah. Um, then there are um, new kind of ways I'm looking at marketing as a profession, and that actually has tremendously changed in the last three, four years. And every year it's changing. So I'm not driven by technology. Um, every function, even sales is changing, customer success, there are new tools every time that kind of new innovations happening. AI is also have a big role there. So my point is that to be successful as a company, you need to be a learning organization almost. Yeah. And imagine uh, that as a priority for the CEO or the, the leadership team. So the, for the learning leader to align with that objective, which is truly aligned with that strategic goal with the leadership of the company, and creating the environment using technology, using pedagogy and everything else so that it's a very nimble, fast-paced learning where new things are always brought up quickly, uh, the velocity in terms of getting people into a new kind of technology that everybody needs to learn around is very quick and you get to know who has learned, who has not. Um, it's no longer that old kind of brick and mortar, like waterfall kind of a structure. So as you were saying, right, the it might seem hard. It might seem like nobody cares sometimes, but actually there is a tremendous opportunity right now if for us to align with, with that kind of a output. And, and it's not that hard to, like I would also want to say is that, yes, it is difficult because you have to learn something new. There's a change in behavior in terms of people designing these experiences and also taking it, but it is also not rocket science. No. Most of the cases, yeah. we have the technology, we have the know-how. It's just a matter of getting that alignment and getting these things started. So that that makes me pretty excited. And I'm, I'm seeing that in higher education, at least, I'm seeing a lot of change happening right now. Many leaders are very you know, excited to kind of drive some of these changes. Um, I don't know about companies. I mean, corporate world, I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are there. I mean, are you seeing corporate L&D kind of shifting fast enough or what are the challenges there? Um, you know, the question of fast enough, <laughs> I don't know that anybody's shifting fast enough because it, it almost just seems, and I, and I did a, a panel discussion on this the other day, is like, how fast is too fast? And in some cases, I almost think there's a need for organizations to take an intentional step back and say, hang on, like going back to this, are we being intentional about our experimentation or are we just looking at the landscape of change around us that we're just running around trying to keep up? And it's like, well, guess what? You're never going to keep up. Like, period. You might as well just, you may have been able to keep up a few decades ago. At this point, there is no keeping up. So you almost have to be more intentional about going, where are we going to try and keep up? Because we can't keep up everywhere. So that's where when I look at like the corporate sector, I go, 
I think a lot of people are trying to keep up. And I think that's a, in some cases a wasted cause because it's like, well, you're not going to. So how about just be more strategic about it? Um, in terms of where we are, I would say similar to what you're seeing in academics, I think L&D is starting to recognize more and catching up on the fact like we, this isn't an option anymore. And I think the last few years have solidified that for us, that it's like transformation isn't an option. Where I, If I were to put my finger on where I think we are right now as an industry, I think many people are struggling to figure out what does that mean though? And I think a lot of people are struggling with that. Some are making some significant progress in other areas and struggling in others. I, I will just say to anybody who's listening, who's like, well, who's got it figured out? Nobody does. I, I don't think anybody has it figured out because everything's constantly in this state of change. But I think going back to something we talked about earlier, I would say even on the corporate level, organizationally, not just L&D, is in the same position. And I think that makes it difficult for L&D because we're looking at it going, we want to enable these changes in the organizations, but at the leadership, like you've got to have an idea mm. of where we're going. And I don't know that a lot of companies have quite even figured out like, wait, they're, they're still kind of in this crazy cycle of spinning around, which is why I would say everything we talked about, whether you're an L&D leader, whether you're the VP of ops, whether you're the VP of marketing, customer success, sales, the CEO, I would say what everything we just talked about is as relevant to you as it would be to a director of learning and development or a VP of learning and development within an organization. I, I almost feel like I'm seeing at the corporate level, it's almost unanimous that everyone's in this state. And if anything, I think for L&D leaders, this is a real opportunity to your point for us to lean in because the CEO may not recognize we have to be a learning organization. We have the chance to step up and go, you have to, and we can show you how and let us be that enabler. And I think that's a real opportunity for us. Yeah, no, no. I really think that is where, um, you know, things are heading right now because, you know, it's, I, I do believe that the pressure always comes from the market. Like just like higher education, a lot of the pressure is coming from students who are expecting a certain level of experience. Same is from the market. I mean, I think training and retraining employees with different skills and is an extremely important thing. And you know, even in higher education, like a lot of the institutions that we work with, uh, they are increasingly catering to co employees of companies which are coming to them to recite, you know, we get reskilled in areas or kind of learn the latest uh, yeah. trade or tricks and many other things uh, to kind of reskill themselves. So I think the need is clearly there. It's just a matter of aligning all the, the pieces. <laughs> Which is, yeah. which is which is not complex, but I'm glad that we are talking about all of these things right now. Yeah. So. Well, and again, it's, is it extremely, and I think it's a matter of, this goes back to the mindset. It's like, how do you want to look at this environment right now? You could look at it and go, this is messy and terrifying and overwhelming, and I don't know what to do about it. Or you can look at this and go, this is quite possibly one of the greatest opportunities in the history of your career to actually go, whoa, I can actually drive something transformational in an organization that historically there may have been zero appetite for ever mm. before. And I think it's one of those. So it's the choice is yours. What do you want to do with it? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, especially the AI wave that we are running into right now. I mean, every company is confused right now. How oh does gosh! AI impact you know, LMD can play a big role. I, I I do believe in that. So, I I would say in many ways the the transformation that is on the doorstep, if it hasn't already kicked in the front door, um, the role we play as talent leaders, we are the guardians of where that goes. And does that mean the whole weight of it sits on our shoulders? No, absolutely not. But do we have an opportunity to shape and mold that in a positive way that? Others can't. I, I absolutely think so. Okay. Well, <laughs> I feel like we're just getting started and we could keep going on this, but we're at time. So I'm going to wrap this up by just saying, I so appreciate the conversation we had here, uh, Shanik. And I hope that anybody who listens to this doesn't get hung up on the, so is it, analog or digital, like, which is because that's the wrong question to be asking. And I think we've highlighted 
why that's the wrong question to be asking. And that if you ask the right questions and pursue the right things, um, it's, it's an exciting future. And I think what you're doing at Yellow Dig to help make that a reality uh, is super exciting. So thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Christopher. Thanks for inviting me. It was a real pleasure to uh, chat with you about all these interesting topics and uh, uh, looking forward to reconnecting and keeping the conversation going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I hope you have a great rest of your week and a wonderful weekend, and we will see you next week. Yeah.